Good afternoon, everyone, and we are here for Office Hours, another great edition of it. I have no idea how many hundreds of episodes we've had, but we have a special host today, and she's filling in for Blaine Bartlett, the famous business consultant, and it's Alicia Covey. Welcome to Office Hours. Uh, thank you, David, and thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Well, we have a perfect, uh, perfect first guest for you. Uh, because Jason Reed is the founder and chairman of ChooseLife.org. And I know you and I both work uh, diligently in the mental health uh, space. And my mission was uh, motivated and inspired because one of my daughter's uh, friends at 12 years old committed suicide. And it led me down a journey uh, of why people are so unhappy. And I found just unbelievable statistics about how unhappy people are to the point where they're taking their own life. And um, this is all ages, but it's especially, look, I can understand a, a person of 30 or 40 or even a 19-year-old having struggles, but, you know, young kids uh, are taking their, their own lives. And we need more people like Jason Reed to not just help, but to raise awareness of what these issues are and how we deal with them. Jason Reed, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you, David. Thank you, Alicia. Yeah, it's so yeah. nice to have you, Jason, and to meet you. And, you know, this is such a, 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 a just to me, important issue. And you have this documentary uh, that is a great way to raise awareness called Tell My Story. Uh, but before I get into the documentary, I would love to learn more about the issue itself. And so, you know, you are a great source for people who may or may not know what a huge uh, epidemic this is, that our mental health of all ages are really something to be concerned about for our future. Sure, David. So let me start with, I, I am not an expert in the field. I'm a guy who lost his son uh, four and a half years ago. And Ryan had just turned 14. I am a business guy. I had four kids. I thought I had my act together. I thought I didn't see anything coming. And so I can't sit here and tell you all of the stats and all the issues and all of the stuff around the mental health of our children or ourselves. But I think that all you have to do is look around these days and you will see that we're all hurting. Yeah. Yeah. To come. And it's a lot worse now. I mean, there's stats that 40% of kids have, have some degree of anxiety, depression, and, you know, depending on where you want to get your stats, a lot of them have suicidal ideation. And it is not like where I grew up. I did a TEDx talk um, called um, the hot lava talk, comparing how when I grew up, because I'm, I'm 55 today. And oh, hey, happy, birthday. happy birthday. Thank you. And when I grew up, and I was 14 when the phone rang, um, my dad answered and he decided who was going to talk. If, if you were allowed to take that phone call and how long you were allowed to talk for, because that's how it works in my house. And when you compare that to where we are today, it's a completely different world. And so when I grew up, there wasn't. And David, um, when you grew up, we didn't have this world where kids were you know, thinking about suicide or harming themselves. And today it's an everyday thing. And it's also younger and younger kids. So I did the movie Tell My Story that you can see on Amazon Prime and use, it's, it's all over the place now, I guess. And it talks about, it's me going and interviewing kids and parents and you know, suicide hotlines talking about what's going on and how this all happened. And it's a great movie, I believe, for parents to watch with their kids. It'll start conversations. And I did that back, it came out two years ago. And now we're working on a new program called What I Wish My Parents Knew. And this is a school program that's going into schools um, starting this fall. And the reason I'm doing this is because the most powerful thing when you talk to, when you watch Tell My Story, is watching these kids talk about how they feel. And you're a parent, you watch that, you go, that could be my child. So I went and interviewed 11 kids um, in Las Vegas a couple of months ago and talk to them about their mental health and where they were. And these were kids who had attempted suicide at some point or another and talking about what they wish their friends knew, their parents knew, how they felt. And it is staggering to see 
what really goes through these kids' minds. I asked them questions. They have a good, Alicia, I'm like, what? How old were you when you started thinking? Yeah. And I was blown away that here's, I thought, you know, you're going to be 12, 13, 14, 17, right? Maybe, maybe you're going into some kind of, um, you know, puberty thing. And now you're thinking, you know, blonde. And these yeah. kids, I mean, I was seven years old when I realized I had a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you that's true, Jason, because that's about the age it was for me when I was just like, it would just be better. if I just wasn't here. It wouldn't hurt so much. So I, I think that it, it that happens. And I feel like there's definitely, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, people that are extremely empathetic and uh, connected to others and have that ability to connect also have huge impacts when it comes to what's going on around them emotionally and energetically. And I think that if somebody doesn't teach you like, hey, you have a really awesome gift to be able to feel and help others, but you have to guard yourself so that you're not picking up feelings and energy from others that don't belong to you, then it all just feels like it's you, you have to carry this weight. And I wonder if you saw that with the kids that you interviewed. I, I think that, you know, you're bringing up a, that's a whole deep conversation about people who are empathetic and empathic in general and what they feel and how they feel and how they hold on to things. But if you just stick to the very simple, the more sensitive a child is, yeah. There's a lot more to be sensitive about right now, right? Mm -hmm. And so here, here's my big message to parents and what I try to get across to people now is that, look, at there are not enough therapists, there are not enough doctors, there are not enough psychologists and psychiatrists out there to solve this problem. Right now, if you, if you have a child in crisis, you might wait three or four weeks or a month or two months till we get to see a therapist at all. And then chances are that therapist isn't a good match for you or your child. So my big message to parents at this moment in time is that if we're going to save our kids, if we're going to change the path that we're on, which is not a good path, parents have to own their kids' mental health. They have to own their kids' mental health the way they own their kids' physical health. And we all, like, if you have a kid who's got a stomach ache or if they, you know, Ryan had Crohn's disease. My wife knew he had Crohn's disease and she went to every doctor and got every every possible thing. He was on the best medication, the best hospitals, all that jazz, right? We didn't know he had no health issues. You know, J Jason, I have four children, um, three daughters, 23, 21, and 18, and very sensitive uh, to them and, and trying my best to understand the difference between being a child and having mental health issues. And, you know, it, it's very difficult, especially for a man who has daughters, I have one son who's 12, uh, you know, to understand the differences between, you know, just teenage uh, or young 20 year old issues compared to mental health issues. And you're someone who has experienced that. I, I, I feel with your son that you, you know, didn't seem to have an idea that there was that, that issue there that in your mind, which was, you know, my biggest concern is, Hey, they're just 21, right? I, I make that joke all the time when my wife's like, are you kidding me? I'm like, ah, she's 21. And just this conversation here ha has me a little bit concerned that, you know, I'm not asking the right questions. What questions should we be asking to determine, hey, are they just teenagers? Or are they just 21? Or are they just seven? Or are they just 12? What questions should we be asking to help us since we don't have enough professional help? So, so David, here's, here's my perspective on this now. And I didn't know any of this, right? I didn't ask the right questions. I didn't know. So a lot of the stuff I've learned on my own because I've been in this space. And here's the first thing I, I, I like to tell people is that I've never been depressed. I don't know what it's like. David, I'm going to guess you don't know what it's like either. <laughs> right. Alicia, you know what it's like. Right? Yeah. Right. But David, I have no clue. Yeah. So if, you know, I'm in Southern California, David, I think you're in Southern California. I'm looking outside right now. There's not a cloud in the sky, right? If I was sitting here with someone who was depressed, they're only going to see clouds. Mm. And there's nothing I can say is going to change their mind to tell them there's no clouds in the sky. And guys like you and I fix stuff, right? I coach CEOs. You coach CEOs. You fix stuff. People come to me every day with problems in my own business and their own and theirs, same as you. And what do you and I do? We fix their problems. You can't fix this. 
So the first thing you have to understand is you're not going to fix it. The second thing you have to do is actually ask, ask the deeper question. Say, tell me how you really are. Like get them to talk about themselves. Because what's the difference between someone who's just having a bad day and someone who's thinking about, I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. Well, you have to, you have to get them to talk about themselves. You have to be vulnerable and get them to understand that you're willing to listen. Um, I didn't show up the right way. I show up. I showed up as a guy who built companies. I showed up as a guy who's coached CEOs. I showed up as an Iron Man and a black belt. I wrote seven books. All this other crap I did, right? Who never cried. I never told my kids I'd failed at seventeen other companies. Never told my wife. Never told my kids I almost lost the house three times. Never told my wife. So how did I show up? I showed up as a guy who everything was perfect, mm-hmm. always. Mm. So when Ryan had his own problems, what did Ryan think? My he dad, good enough. it must be me. Yeah. You know, so, Jason, I think David asked this question similar to mine, but mine would be, have you ever read that book, The Gift of Fear? I have not. No. Okay. It's an amazing book. And what it talks about is red flags that we all ignore because there's always red flags. Um, so what I'm curious of, what would be the top three red flags that parents should look out for with their teenagers that should be a sign? If you hear them say this, or if you hear that, you better start looking. Look, first thing is don't assume that just that they're a grumpy teenager. Those days are gone. You can't just say they're just a grumpy teenager. You got to find out why they're a grumpy teenager. You got to spend the time to talk to them, go for a walk, figure out, you know, just tell me. They have to understand that they can talk to you about anything. If you're going to save your kids, and which we all have to, your kids have to feel like they can talk to you about anything. You're not going to judge them. You're not going to try to fix them. You're not going to do any of that. So if they are grumpy, err on the side that there might be something going on. If they spend a lot more time in their rooms quietly by themselves or they don't want to go see their friends as much anymore and their grades start slipping, that's a sign. I wish it could be like when we grew up where we're just a grumpy kid and it's okay. Well, that grumpy kid right now might be a 50-50 shot if somebody's thinking about harming themselves. Not every kid's going to do it and not every kid's going to die. But you just can't take any chances. You, we have to have a different relationship with our kids, have them feel completely open to talk to us about anything, and we're not going to judge them. And not the relationship, Dave, that you and I probably have with our parents. Yeah. yeah. There, There is a, a competition as well, which is so interesting. Because I had a, and didn't realize till I'm three months younger than you are, right? I, I didn't even realize till my dad was much older that I had a competition with my father, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, because I wanted to be better than, than, than him. And I've worked really hard that I don't want my kids to compete with me, right? I, I, I am over-exaggerating some of my failures and I make them very public, which I think is a huge benefit to my relationships because they see where I am and what I've gone through. And that's completely normal. Um, But the movie itself, I think is so important in tell my story because a lot of people don't know how to approach the feelings. They, they, because they grew up like you and I, uh, they don't know how to approach their children to, to get them to say how they feel, to, to open up. And what I love about the movie most of all, which came out in 2021 is that, it gives you that entree. It's like, hey, let's sit down and watch the movie. Now the subject matter itself exposes and raises the awareness to what did you think about that? Instead of how do you feel, it hopefully, you know, is utilized. If I feel that way. You know, I, dad, you know, I, that's exactly how I feel. Exactly. And that's why I made it is it's it's a it's a way for you to sit down with your kids and watch something that hopefully sparks a conversation, a conversation I wish I had. Yeah. And I, I appreciate your not only vulnerability, but you taking it to the next step to help other people so that they don't have to experience, uh, you know, I always say pain's an indicator. They have a better place to be being promoted to be able to take your story and make a story for others so that they don't have to experience what you did. And, uh, you know, my heart and uh, my soul go out to you and and your wife and anything we can do to help 
ChooseLife.org. Let's extend the conversation. Everyone, if you know children and families and you have your own, it's an easy way to take ownership as a parent uh, of your child's mental health with an easy catalyst of creating a conversation around how they feel and how you could be of service or value to the most important people in your life. Alicia, thank you as well for being so vulnerable. And uh, we will have you back, Jason. Please let us know and I look forward to promoting the movie even more. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you. Awesome. Well, it's, you know, uh, Jason and I are optimists. So I came, I came in so excited that Alicia's here and I didn't really get a chance to look at my notes who's on. And so yeah. I'm like super excited and positive and jovial. And then I like looked down at my notes. I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I think it's okay. I got, a real issue. I got a real issue to deal with. <laughs> You know, yeah, it is a real one, but I mean, you're that's who you are, and that's what we all love about you. It's just like you're always you're always happy. So. Yeah, no, and, it, and it's a danger, right? When you're a optimist, it's a it's a danger because I used to actually think, you know, my advice to friends who were depressed, and I recently is I think you know I had one of my friends on his fifty fourth birthday take his life, hung himself in his garage, and yeah, and I used to tell that friend when we were young, dude, just look at the. The, the glass half full, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Like I'm a fucking genius. Excuse my language. I'm a genius, yeah. right? Like yeah. I'm a genius. Yeah. Why can't you just see the glass half full? You, you know, this is easy. That's because all I see is the glass overflowing. And you know yeah. what makes it remarkable is I didn't know to what extent. I know that you had some childhood trauma, like I did, yeah. uh, but I didn't know to what extent. And because I see you as a cup overflowing optimist yeah. like me as well. And you must've done a lot of work to get there. Uh, <laughs> a lot of work. My mom, actually three of her brothers killed themselves out of six kids, three. So it's just like, it's pretty heavy in, in the family. And I see my sister struggle with it and I've had my own struggles with it, but I had to realize like all of this is a choice. And what, what I feel like most of the time, you know, the doctors want to do is just shove pills in you. And I'm like, and that doesn't make it better. <laughs> like yeah. you are not fixing the problem. And the problem is that for some people it comes so naturally to be optimistic. And then for others, it's almost like you're naturally extremely pessimistic. And then when you have negativity, because those types of scenarios that come down family, I mean, that's like already in you. And so you're fighting against something that you didn't even create. And then you see more pain and hurt. And, and then you're like, why is it so painful? And yeah. so there's a lot of learning, you know, and, and, but if you can get past it, then you can help so many other people that, that also have those feelings. So. I appreciate you and Jason doing that so much yeah. of the time. And there is an energetic and genetic inheritance. And I'm certainly blessed to have that happy gene as my genetic and energetic inheritance. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll move on to uh, something as critical as, as well. Um, our CEO coming on next is Kyle Webb. He Yay. is the CEO of Cooperative Economic Empowerment Movement, the CEEM. And you can find him at CEM.coop. Um, and CM's partnership uh, is now with LA County, and we're really trying to create an ecosystem of empowerment, of equity and inclusion. And, uh, you know, I have dealt uh, in this area for a long time. I've been blessed to, you know, dedicate my sports career uh, with my business partner, Warren Moon, and representing the Clemente family and Jackie Robinson and a variety of other individuals. Uh, to understand how do we create change uh, with economic empowerment? Uh, because I'm a big make a lot of money, help a lot of people, have a lot of fun person. I get some shit sometimes when they're like, why you put make a lot of money first? Well, this is the reason I put make a lot of money first, because Kyle and I know the power of economic development, the power of making money. Welcome to Office Hours, Kyle. Absolutely. Welcome, David, Kyle. Thank you so much for having me. And Alicia, thank you so much uh, uh, for giving the, giving us this opportunity. Uh, but you're absolutely right. You were right about what you said about the trauma uh, being passed down. Um, and it's true for, for, for all of us. And it's true in a multitude of ways. Um, you know, we th think about the, the psychological trauma that people uh, uh, take on. And, and one of the things that we look to do and seem is really about starting with Black folks and how do we help us um, overcome some of the, uh, the racialized trauma that we have internalized over time. 
Um, and, you know, we always talk about starting with wealth uh, because wealth begets power and wealth and power together. When you have them, you will have a better socioeconomic uh, status. Your, your socioeconomic status improves. All of your quality of life outcomes improve. And so, you know, there are a lot of organizations that are doing great work working on quality of life outcomes, and they're not working on the underlying issues. There are a lot of great organizations that are working on um, socioeconomic status issues, and they should be. And they're producing great work, but they're still not working on the underlying issues. We're in a capitalistic society every single day. And if you can't participate in capitalism, you can't get out of the, your own way because it will keep you down. And so, you know, that's why we do the work that we do. And thank you so much for not just acknowledging it, but living it out in your life, right? It's so much of this is about making money because when you have access to resources, you have choices. You have agency to control with your life. And so, uh, uh, and, that, and that's true, whether we're talking about just depression or we're talking about the um, the history um, of, of, of of lack of opportunity, especially for people of color, but really for all people in this country. If you didn't have it, it's hard to get it. Um, and, and so we're excited, to, again, excited to do the work, man. It's awesome. Yeah, I love it. it. You know, uh, I heard, I, I was speaking with a girlfriend the other day and she really, I have, our family didn't really participate in the whole color thing. So I, and I, we were homeschooled. So I was kind of raised colorblind. It didn't mean anything to me. And then when I got into the real world, I was like, Oh shit, like people actually like, this is a thing. And so it was definitely eye opening. I had it explained to me the other day though, as if, and I had never heard it this, this way before she was like, Alicia, I have to climb out of a box in every scenario that I go in. You don't even realize there is a box. I'm always in the box. And she was, she's an attorney and she's um, black. And she was like, I have two boxes to climb out of the feminist mm -hmm. one and the black one. So think about that. And I was like, Whoa, dude, I, it just never hit me that way. And I mean, she's a very successful woman, but it definitely made me realize like that it is, it is a box. And so how can you help people get out of that box? What are you teaching people? And what are the best, like, if you can, if you haven't done anything and you're starting right now, what are the three steps mm -hmm. that you can give me? Yeah. So, you know, the, the box is such a is such a real thing, especially for folks that are dealing with the issues of intersectionality. Um, you know, you got a woman and you have a black woman. Got, uh, it, the the stereotypes that one must overcome are extraordinary. And, yeah. you know, so many of the things and the tools that you were talking about earlier around um, uh, uh, around mental health. Right. Are very similar tools uh, uh, that people use in this space. And for us, um, we look to create an air and an access uh, in a space where opportunities can be developed. Uh, um, as David talked about in the intro, um, we have a partnership with Los Angeles County and really the Los Angeles County Fair Association, in which we get to do on an annual basis a mini takeover of their fair. And our goal is to introduce um, vendors into the fair who wouldn't otherwise have access to that kind of space. And so, you know, for one, we work with them on getting all of their ducks in a row so that they can be attractive to the fair. And then number two, we provide them a space where for three days they can dip their foot, their toe in the water. And so our hope is to create opportunities for a lot more uh, people of color who wouldn't otherwise have had access to that venue to to uh, uh, whether they have a restaurant or, or, or uh, they're selling personal effects, uh, to be able to. Uh, access that group of people. You know, there's a million people that come to the fair every year. And, you know, on a weekend, you might get a quarter million. And, you know, that's a space that a lot of us can't say that we've had. Um, that kind of experience really lends credibility when they hand into a bank, right? And so, you know, they can talk about being able to have a, been a vendor at the fair, uh, being able to, to, uh, to execute at that scale. And then for us, we want the really good vendors that really want to be at the fair for the full run to have a pathway to, to be able to move forward. And so for us, as we talk about building wealth, those are kind of access points um, that we talk towards uh, around building building wealth. And Alicia, you asked that question about these three things to get started. Um, you know, uh, uh, I was listening to something and, and um, I heard this uh, 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 the saying, follow your effort. Um, any place where you will put your effort uh, for a while, it was Mark Cuban who said it, uh, uh, but anyway, anywhere where you'll put your effort for, for a minute or for, uh, uh, for free, that might be a space for you to focus on. Uh, if you're focusing there, uh, uh, second, um, understand what's being underserved. 
Um, and if you can find a niche where you can find something or, or, or something to serve, um, um, uh, that's an awesome thing. And then number two, um, follow through, follow up and then follow through and follow up again uh, and follow through and follow up some more. There are so many uh, res- there are so many resources that are out there for people, um, you know, CDFIs that are looking for great opportunities. Right. And that will help you b- develop your opportunity. Uh, but, you know, it starts with following up and following through and, and understanding that when people say no, they're just saying not right now. Right. No, no is, is, is a word that you can understand as a hard no, but it's also a word that you can understand as an opportunity for you to be challenged to improve uh, your product or service. And so follow up and follow through and continue to just follow up and follow through. Yeah, I love that. I love it as well. I just had a woman on my show yesterday morning, uh, a black woman who graduated college. And it was really interesting. She took a free internship, uh, got rejected by many companies. She wanted to be in the uh, hospitality venture uh, area and got rejected to work for free even. Uh, And her parents, you know, freaked out on her because like you can't graduate college and work for free. But meanwhile, she invested in herself and she owns three hotels now and has her own multi-million dollar course on teaching people especially of color, especially women, on how to uh, own your own hotel. Um, to that end, you know, there's an interesting thing as a white middle-aged man, uh, because I look at one statistic that drives me nuts, because I've dedicated literally my career to equity and inclusion before it was even hip. And, you know, there's no accident who my business partners have been in my life and who my friends have been. And one of the stats that blows my mind, and it the color that rings true in my heart is green when i tell you that you know almost 75 percent of the earth is people of color and women so right almost 75 percent of the earth three percent of that group of the 75 percent get funded there's there's a green problem there in my opinion not sustainable green i'm talking about the green that makes shit happen and the green that i believe in to make shit happen when you have good intentions There's one issue, though, that I have found is with being a white middle-aged man around white middle-aged men who for years have gotten huge advantages in what we do. Even though I grew up poor, single mom, six kids in the projects in Akron, Ohio, right? I had huge advantages, right, to get to where I am today. But the interesting thing is I think that the white middle-aged man needs to unlearn, that we have to take a different approach. We, we have to unlearn certain things because we have good intentions, but it's very difficult when we've been raised for so long and we need to unlearn some things. And the only way we can unlearn some things is ask. Mm-hmm. We, need to, we need to learn and talk to not just pretend like we know and, oh, well, I, you know, I, the Rooney rule in the NFL, right? We're interviewing, you know, black coaches. That, that's the solution. No, why don't you talk to a black coach and say, what would help you, mm-hmm. right? I, I own a team. I'm a general manager. I'm Dave Meltzer. I'm a sports executive. I have power. Tell me what would help instead of just, hey, we're going to give you a, an interview. And I think this idea of unlearning, and my question is, you know, what are some of the things that you see that needs to be unlearned for this economic development, this misconceptions of the middle-aged white man who's trying to help which I look, I maybe I'm biased, maybe I, I'm full of shit, but I think the majority of people on earth are they mm-hmm. want good things for good, they want equality, they want they just don't know what to do, or they have to unlearn some stuff to get it done. Well, and empathy yeah. is the hardest thing that you can be, you know, mm-hmm. being empathetic is hard if you haven't experienced yourself. So it's really sometimes we don't even know what we don't know. Right. So maybe Kyle can shed some light there. How can we be better friends? How can we be better supporters? Yeah. All of that is, is such a thing. I think you know, some, a lot of the work that we do for individuals, we do teach uh, uh, entry level to C-suite training on power. Um, because the power dynamic that is taught in the households of people of color traditionally is very different than the power dynamic uh, that's taught in the households of of people who are not generally of color. It's also very different taught taught to men and boys across the board than it is taught to women across the board. And so when we think of a, uh, a lot of, um, um, of, 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 of uh, households of color, they teach this thing about humility um, and, and putting your humble self first, 
Well, in the workplace, if you're putting your humble self first, that might mean not promoting yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that is part of your cultural value to not promote yourself. It doesn't mean that you are not necessarily good and it doesn't mean that you don't think highly of yourself. It just means that you're taught not to toot your own horn. Uh, uh, oftentimes, and I think about, you know, growing up in a black family uh, where I would see one of my cousins would, would try to en uh, uh, entertain a conversation with their parents. Like this is a grown folk conversation, right? That's a conversation really about culturally understanding your place and when to interject. One of the things that I think that we need to do a much better job of is one, understanding that um, humility is not a problem. And how we respond to people from, as you said, uh, uh, Alicia, in, in a um, uh, an empathetic perspective, is that how we promote ourselves may be different. But as we are able to move forward on merit, and sometimes merit can look interesting, but I'll come back to that. But as we move forward on merit, we may be able to more likely create better outcomes. And merit is not just short-term outcomes. Merit also uh, um, um, needs to be measured in the ideas that get moved forward in teams, right? Mm -hmm. If we are only measuring merit based on our outcomes, we are measuring merit based on our assumptions. If our assumptions don't include the empathy for the people around the group, their voice was not included. And so the goal here is to create inclusion so that we can merit more uh, 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 more positive outcomes for the organization and for the people that get to live through that organization. And so I think that there are a lot of things that we can do, and that's one of them. But on the flip side, I think we have to do a much better job as communities of color of teaching ourselves what is different and be empathetic in these in in the roles that we are in, because we need to empathize that power base is not reflected the same in our value chain. And it's not necessarily wrong if we want to play in that environment to code switch so that our, we are playing the power game in a very similar way. But when we come home, we can still live out our values. When we reach the top, we can start to create values in organizations that are a bit more empathetic of the people who were not included. One thing that we find that people forget often is that yes, you made it and you made it in your way and you made it in this uh, in an organization that may not have been empathetic towards your vision. But that doesn't mean you have to keep those values the same, even if they produced a result. One of the reasons that people of color are promoted in those opportunities is so that they can create long lasting change that creates more inclusion on uh, the cut on the uh, internal customer side, such that you can create more value for external customers uh, moving forward sustainably. And to that measure, as we're running out of time, though, what I love about the color of green as well is through now we have data to show and I think it's going to accelerate the change is that companies who do follow these methodologies are more profitable. And when we can put that data together, people who have equity and inclusion, people who support and fund this economic equality are far more profitable. Women CEOs, far more profitable, funding people of color and women, far more profitable than what people used to think would be successful as venture capitalists, angel investors, et cetera. Kyle Webb, we got to have you back. We'll do more together. All you got to do is ask, my friend. You are part of my soul, my mission. I'm in L.A., obviously, Orange oh. County. We, we're here. Let's figure out how we can help more people and fund more people to do more good. So I appreciate you. Oh, Kyle, yeah, it was man. such a blessing to meet you. I could have talked to you for another two hours. Next time. I know. <laughs> I'll, I'll right there with you. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Have a good afternoon. Awesome. Thank you. Thank Kyle you Webb, so check them out. Uh, it's at cem.coop. Uh, great causes. Uh, we're gonna keep on going, man. This is uh, we, we have such an eclectic group, right? And so, yeah, uh, th this one's more, you know, up my alley. Uh, I think we're gonna have fun with it as well. And this Steve, one, when I saw the book title, I was like, no way. Exactly. <laughs> it's be fun. Yeah, Steve Manning's in the house. He Hi, is. I don't, I don't know how you become a former marketing guru, dude. Once you're a marketing guru, you're a marketing guru at FYMC, stephenjmanning.com.
And his book may have one of the greatest titles next to the book I'm launching called Don't Do Business with Dicks. We'll put these on the shelf together. But the, the book's called Pimps, Whores, and Patrons of Virtue, a kaleidoscope of poignant and entertaining satires, antidotes, essays, and ideologies about our human condition and spirit. Thank you so much for writing the book and titling it. Uh, it brings the heart, Stephen. Welcome to Office Hours. My mom's biggest issue for me was study history. And I said, why, why do I have to study history? This, you know, Ben Franklin's autobiography may be the boringest 900 pages I've ever read. And she said, because you'll learn human nature. And uh, as one marketing guy to another, that has helped me more than anything else in my career is to understand the human condition and spirit, human nature. Uh, what has motivated you to write this extraordinarily valuable book about virtue and its relativity uh, in an entertaining way, by the way? in uh, its relativity to human condition and spirit? Well, I think that, um, and I must thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm really great company. Uh, David, I know much about you, but then anybody can spell contract knows something about you. So I, I'm delighted. I'm delighted to spend time. Uh, I think that uh, the book itself as you describe it, it, it is not a novel, thankfully, because I find most people don't want to bother believing, reading a novel. Uh, it is 31 individual pieces, satires, stories, anecdotes, some correspondence, even a eulogy. And I'm, I am humbled to say it's been published around the world to what is a, what is a again, I'm humbled by the audience around the world that have reacted to the book and send me emails all hours of the night and day tell me I kept them awake because they were laughing and crying and getting really genuinely pissed off and all of that. If I accomplished that, it was a good thing. Uh, maybe the best way for me to get into this, I'll try to be brief uh, on the kind of time. Oh, by the way, it takes me 15 minutes to say hello, if you let me. Um, but uh, And some people actually appreciate it and some even pay for it which in itself is remarkable. But the, the, the title, which you like, let me tell you what came from it. It, it, it does, does speak to what, what this is about, really. Uh, partial credit for this title goes to a woman by the name of Kara K. Ginsburg. Now, her real name was Claire. Uh, why do we call her Kara K? The woman had the reddish hair you have ever seen. Hell, she could stop traffic walking across Madison Avenue in Midtown. Um, at the time, years ago now, uh, I was a kid running a, a business that was already around 300 million, ultimately topped out at about a billion. And she was one of our media brokers. And one day I was on the phone with her. Oh, heck, she had kids older than me. And I said, Claire, how can you do business with those people? She had some clients that were, whoo, uh, you know, getting indicted was a daily occurrence. <laughs> And she said to me, well, what do you mean? I said, how could you do that? Now, I can't do the New York wine and the pitch and all that. And she said to me, you know, honey, we're all pimps and whores. It's all about the money. I said, hold on a second. Some of us are not that. Some of us are actually kind of virtuous. And she then said to me, well, show me one of those. And she hung up on me. <laughs> okay. So I said, wait a second. So I spent the ensuing decades focusing on all manner of people, pimps, whores, and patrons of virtue. Now, the reality is that for people like yourselves who have done what I've done, you know, you, you and I have traveled that million life miles, and then a million miles in those, you know, those pressurized, silly sardine cans, the flying stuff. Uh, we do meet a lot of people. We talk to a lot of people. Hell, I will talk to anybody who will talk to me. I will talk to people who should be institutionalized. But then I also called the Pope one morning and asked a theological question. Now, the, the reality is we end up putting people in buckets. So I said, wait a minute. It's pimps, whores, and then patrons of virtue. Pimps and whores, it's qualitative, also quantitative, but it's not, in not, in not intended to be salacious or prov provocative. Thankfully, it is. But it, it is pejorative. Patrons of virtue, so I asked myself, what exactly are virtuous people? And I said, no, 
allow me the pablum here, and I'm probably quoting somebody very smart, but I said, which I shamelessly do, by the way, I, in fact, I quoted you two days ago in, in a speech I made. Um, I think to be virtuous today is very difficult. To lead a moral, a righteous life, you know, a productive life, and not at the expense of others. And then the holy grail or the holy sepulcher of all this is to not be situationally ethical. What does that mean to me? Well, never bend with circumstances, needs, uh, all the nasty stuff that's around it, all the things that are so compelling. That said, if you are never never ethically challenged, you if you don't bend, you may just break. So I, I, I try to live what I think is a virtuous life. But then I also realize the difficulty and the, and the ridiculous challenge, which is if you don't bend, you're going to break into society today. As, 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 as incomprehensible, incomprehensible, ugly that is. So I said, you know what? Of all of us that try so damn hard, we are probably just patron, patrons of virtue. I think that for every virtuous person I have ever met, and I can count them, I think that probably nine people that get close, they try. And I think that's hence the name Patrons of Virtue. Pins, whores, and Patrons of Virtue. And if you don't read my book, all sorts of bad stuff is going to happen to you. Uh, that, that's, that's a guarantee. <laughs> I love it. So what's your favorite uh, character in your book? So I'm sure you have a favorite story in the book, but what's the favorite character and why? You know, you are asking me to pick among my children. I could see that. I could see that. Okay. Now, uh, the book, I don't know how much time we have, but here's a very quick story. Uh, four days ago, I got an email at six in the morning from a guy. I looked him up. He runs a big branding agency in the world, you know? And he said, you owe me a good night's sleep. I thought about it. I said, there's a couple of problems with that. One, I don't know you, and I don't think I would keep you awake all night. Well, no, it's my wife. She kept me awake all night long. Why? Because all night long, she was laughing, she was crying, and pounding the keyboard. I said, what are you doing? Well, I'm sending notes to some friends. I'm reading this book. You've got to read it. So... This woman cried and laughed and got really pissed off. She let me know about various pieces in the, in the book. Uh, there's a character in my book. Again, mind you, this is not a novel, which, by the way, is a very good, good thing because people look at the table of contents and say, huh, only women bleed? I got to read that. And then yeah. it's Uncle Eugene, this guy writing about his uncle, and then letter to the Honorable... Uh, Emil Starbright, German ambassador to U.S. Uh, Isaac Asimov's underwear, huh? Uh, so my, my favorite characters or pieces, if you will, are favorites for very, very different reasons. My Eugene is an uncle. I think, I think he's an uncle. I'm not sure. 40 years of research. Haven't figured that one out yet. But it's one of the most amazing rogues I've ever met in my life. What a great story about, uh, and I'm accused of taking literally license. Not at all. That is it. That's what happened. And then there's a piece there called Only Women Bleed. Uh, there are hosts, TV hosts, radio hosts in the South that don't want to interview me because I wrote something called Only Women Bleed. Now, how about you read the first paragraph and you figure out it has nothing to do with what you think it is. It's actually a lyric from a rock song, and it's all about don't judge a book by its cover. One of my favorite pieces because I wrote that at 4 in the morning, um, looking through my library of 130,000 cuts of music, and I said, I, I have only one of these. I don't have an album. Okay. A letter, letter to the Honorable Dr. Emo Starbright, has to do with the Holocaust. It's a letter I wrote the German ambassador to the U.S. I hope you read it. I'll be glad to email it if you want to. And it's, let's just say that last week, an Italian major magazine asked me if they could publish it. I said, wonderful. You're going to publish that while you're electing a fascist government. Makes sense. We're really simpatico here. 
but it was also published in New Zealand. So a totally different, totally different paradigm. Um, Isaac Asimov's underwear. I wrote that at four in the morning because one of my daughters in college said, oh, dad, uh, at midnight, what do you know about the uh, Gutenberg Bible? Mm, haven't thought about it in a couple decades. I got to write this paper. And it's for a class called Ethics and Advertising. Now, I fell out of my chair laughing because I've been in that world my whole Ethics and Advertising. Okay, well, you know what? I thought about writing something, so I had a little fun, wrote something, something called uh, Isaac Asimov's Underwear, which, contrary to my wishes, got published because you'll forgive me for this, but it's 4,000 words of absolute unmitigated balderdash. Like, I'll tell you what, two guys with PhDs and a major university thought it was really slick. I've been avoiding them for years because I can't explain it. So the, the, the point of the book is, uh, again, I am humbled when uh, uh, out of the World War comes a man, I'm talking 30 years, He's a Fulbright scholar, written seven uh, New York Times bestseller. He's got an endowed chair at Massive University. He writes in several languages. I don't understand them in any language, including English, because when he starts talking, you know, I, I find my limits very quickly. And then there are a couple of people that you might have interviewed, Dave, some recently well-known billionaires we have. There are a couple, three people that re send me notes, multiple Oscars and Emmys, and uh, Pulitzer guy, Pulitzer couple, uh, people I re recognize. Now, as you and I speak, I'm getting a terrible headache because my mother from her grave whacking me about the head and my dad screaming, don't forget where the hell you came from. So, but the book, I'm talking a bunch about my book. I, I had my fingers in 60 books a while ago. They're all how-to books. Dave, you will appreciate the part when R.J. Reynolds calls and wants an unpacked premium that they can afford. Okay, so let's write a book. We'll price it at $19.95. We get the Jesuits in Indiana printed for $0.22, cents, and we sell to them for $0.69. Cents. Makes sense for Carlton cigarettes. Also, they ordered 360000 of those. Holy shit. Now you got to write the book. Okay, well, we're going to write a book. Guide to single bars in America. How do you write it? You go to UCLA, you go to USC, you put a three by five card on, on the job board, you know? Wanting smart grad students who write 1,500 words and guide to single bars in America, do in three days. Amazing what you can get for 1,500 bucks. And then you lock yourself up in the mountains for three days, edit the thing, and turn out 180 reasonable pages. But been, we've done 56 of those. This is not that. And you know, how do you, again, my, my good friend, one of my friends, she's, I guess she's in Canada. Of course, he could be in Europe. I don't know where the hell he is. Or where the hell he is, people pay him a lot of money to stay, say stuff. At 4.30 in the morning, he sends me an email. So when is the book coming out? So which book? The Pimps book. I said, mm, I'm actually working another one called Explaining Bitcoin to Buddhist Monks. <laughs> He said, no, 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 pimps. I said, oh, give me a break. That's actually ridiculous. I've got six of you piece stories. I said, oh, okay. So I, 4.30 in the morning, 45 days later, I, I had a manuscript and was published two months later. That's how this happens for me. But it's, I don't know how much more you want about myself. Or stuff. We're, we're having you back. We're having you back. We uh, purposely keep these things short so people want more and... I, I, we could go two days with the with the people that we've had on uh, Stephen, and I, I want to give into what it's like to grow up with both your parents being Holocaust survivors and the impact and influence that has. I know one thing about kids who had parents or grandparents that were Holocaust survivors; they don't complain and they don't whine because uh, you could imagine complaining, no matter what you said to to your parents. You know, you, you could say, oh, you know, my tennis shoes don't fit. And I couldn't imagine ever complaining to my parents if they were Holocaust survivors. And I, I want to get into that impact in, in what you did and how successful you are and everything 
that you do, but I love your sense of humor. I love the clever wittiness that is just uh, so present. And I know why you're so successful in marketing, but you are not a former marketing guru. You are a marketing guru and a legend. Steve, please come back, join us. Everyone, you have to read this book. I have to read it now. <laughs> it's it's, it's on my list now. I'm like, okay, okay. Good one. I, I promise you that I and everyone I know and everybody I pay bills to will really appreciate it. <laughs> you have audio, it. Is it audio book too? Do you get to tell the stories? I beg your pardon? Did you do the audio book? Uh, do you tell the stories? I have not done the audio book because somebody told me I was too arrogant wanting to read it myself. <laughs> and, and, and the last. Oh, you got to. I'll fund, it. I'll fund it. Trust me, I'll fund it. We got to do the audio book. There, anyway. there are a couple things I, I you know, uh, allow me one minute. Uh, the story of being the child of, in communism and of Holocaust survivors. I write extensively and talk extensively about Holocaust, the genesis and anti-Semitism, Holocaust, and all that up to today. You can read about it if you go to my website. There's a lot of that has been published around. StephenJManning.com. If you click on the blog post, you will see a lot of stories about the Holocaust. I write much the same about racism, for example. Your previous interview was fascinating. Uh, I've written 20,000 words on the subject as well. In terms of uh, uh, Holocaust survivors, there's a whole, pair, there's a whole, uh, I, I, I look for a word for this. I see the pathology of children of Holocaust survivors. Uh, I promise you we are a little bit different. It's something we carry with us for a long, for our lifetimes. It, to, to begin with Holocaust survivors, by definition, are some of the strongest people of our ancestry. They survived. And we were all brought up under the absolute guise that there will be another Holocaust. We experienced it, communism. And you need to survive, you need to succeed. Hence, so many Holocaust survivors' kids are well-educated. Even Hitler spared some of the best educated. You have to succeed. If you don't become a successful person, you will die young. I mean, you grow up with that. And yeah, you don't whine much because yeah. you learn from, from early days that history does in fact repeat itself. The whole the, the nonsense, well, if you ignore history, it's bound to repeat. No, it does repeat itself. I wrote a piece recently called The Fourth Reich, China. And I make a very good case for you are witnessing a Holocaust in China, which is ignored by most people. It's frightening, but hey, um, uh, I just did a two-hour interview, which somebody tells me will be headlined on Netflix, on the children of Holocaust survivors, which I found, by the way, I don't really know you folks other than what I read. It is likely that you know more about it already than the man who produces it, who's been working on it for two and a half years, who interviewed me for two hours, and 10 minutes into it, he sat back and said, why don't you lecture for two hours on this? I said, great, I'll send you a bill. So, well, it's, it's, it's a labor of love. I said, tell you what, for the next interview, if I'm headlining this, oh, you are the headliner. I interviewed 39 people. You know more about anybody else. I said, no, I just said better job. But a third of everything you get, I get. Otherwise, find yourself somebody else. But it's a big topic. And, you know, I did an hour to it on podcast. I just did a podcast. An hour. We got we to have you back. I hate to cut you off, but I got Kyle waiting patiently uh, in the wings there. Steven, please come back and join us. We have. It's entirely up to you. I will never turn you down. Oh, please. And keep keep quoting me because when people like you quote me, it only builds my brand of credibility and extreme uh, passion. So thank you so much for joining us. We'll have you back soon. Bye. My pleasure. Thank you both. Lovely. Bye -bye. You. <laughs> He's amazing. Yeah. I, I, you got to look up a guy, Martin Sorrell. He's one of the most famous marketers in the world. And, and uh, Stephen reminds me of uh, Sir. Sir, he's been knighted by the Queen, actually knighted, not pretending to be knighted uh, by the Queen. But we will bring Kyle and Trey on. I thought we had the Sar South Park guys for a second, but it's Kyle Clemmer. I mean, kind of. That would be cooler. That would be <laughs> yes, they're definitely, they've got us beat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Book of Mormon is one of my favorite uh, musicals as well. Um, oh, man, I got to see it. it. It's amazing. Well, look, I've been a tech guy for a long time, and, you know, you guys are on the cutting edge 
of you know helping people transition to believability of Web3 and how uh, we can utilize it in so many different ways. And you know, when I was your age, I was in Web1 and people would tell me you never do research on the internet, never use your credit cards. I've been told everything in Web2 when I was CEO of Samsung's phone division. I'm sure you faced the same challenges that I did uh, in Web3 of you know, helping people understand the capabilities, not the collectability. I talk about the capability of Web3, especially Web3 gaming. What are some of the things you two uh, do you find the hardest to communicate about your business, about, you know, your in the next 12 months, uh, the true tech uh, that's coming uh, in this space? W what's the biggest challenge in communication? Uh, you, you know, what's funny, David, is when we started this company in October last year, if you would have talked to me in June last year, I would have been one of these people who was a little sus of <laughs> NFT gaming. Now, I, now I bought Bitcoin in 2014 um, at $400. Unfortunately, I sold that at $800. I did double my money. <laughs> oh, um, man. Yeah, I, I'm all right here. But, um, you know, man, I mean, to be dead honest, I, I get some of the fear. And, and let me tell you what I think the biggest issue that, that we have to face. And this is one reason we made this company and that we're so excited about this is uh, a lot of people out there, we've seen microtransactions in video games. I'm not going to name any names of these huge companies that have lost the trust of gamers. So when they hear that NFTs are in a game, the first thing gamers think is, okay, how is this going to go against me? And, and that's kind of the atmosphere that the gaming market has created, unfortunately. And it wasn't, you know, I, I've been in tech for a while and it wasn't like that a decade ago, right? So this whole mi microtransaction thing really kind of lost the trust. And when we were coming up with this, our other co-founder who's not here, Nick, him as well, uh, you know, me and Kyle were talking about like, wow, how can we provide ownership to people? and allow them to monetize that ownership. Like we don't own the game. We provide the resources and have other people actually own that. And when we can get that through, because that's a new style of ownership in this whole digital world. And when we can get that through and communicate that to people, they, they start to get really excited. Amazing. At least you look dumbfounded. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, wow, dude. You know what, you know what the last game that I played was Pac-Man. <laughs> Well, like, I mean, you know, it, it's a I good one. Like they actually have a four-player version that uh, that I played <laughs> I at, a, at a little meetup here in Silicon Valley, and it was awesome. That was really I cool. took my kids to something, and they had that, like, but old school, and I was geeking out, and they were like, oh, my God, Mom, you're so embarrassing. Like, <laughs> that's awesome. That's what it. I did when I was your age. <laughs> but, you, it, you, but you mentioned, like, explaining it to, to really with web three it's explaining how it kind of transcends traditional gaming because you know realistically like mech and all these other games they're no different i mean no different than pac-man they look better you know they, they feel yeah. a little bit better um it's understanding what you're able to do so like we talk about the microtransactions well people have the ability to make money playing in these well, ecosystems okay. and, and that really is the big thing but then also at the same time making it not sound so daunting so we work with a lot of very cutting edge technology you know like you hear crypto wallets is like that and and those are scary like when you that, that's where we get the glazed over look um you know we're working with people <laughs> that are making these wallets the same way that you sign up for a gmail account so we're start like that's one of the things that we're very big on is how do we lower the barrier to entry to adoption? Like Trey has this, our battle cry is dummy, dumb, dumb. Um, and it's that's the motto for the company internally. Exactly. Like, how do we make this dumber? How it's just so simple. Yeah. Yeah. How to build a massive crypto company, dummy, dumb, dumb. Um, yeah. And, you know, and that's really what we focus on, because the, the more people that we can make it easy to come into the ecosystem, then we can really rely on, you know, 17 plus years of making video games in Silicon Valley. Like that's when we get good. And so, like, that's really what I'm tasked with is like reaching out, working with all of these developing technologies and integrating them into our ecosystem so that. I put the pressure on Trey and Nick. I'm like, all right, guys, like build a good ecosystem, build a good game, and let's see where we can take this. Wow. Yeah, and it's so many things are dependent upon building something good. You know, I see that with books. I see that with speeches, with content. And people ask me even, you know, what, what's that difference? I'm blessed to work with Alicia 
And, you know, she asked me, like, what, you know, why are you so excited about working with me? And I said, because you're good. You know, I, I can coach people that suck shit and I'm never going to be able to help them. You know, I can yeah. coach a toll booth operator who wants to be a billionaire and I'm not going to get him there. Uh, you know, you can have a book and send it out and be the greatest marketer ever. But if it sucks, you're killing your brand, not helping it. Um, and I think your careers have been based off of providing really quality content, including the free NFT drop you guys just did, right? It sold out in two minutes. Um, and people ask, what's the difference? I said, because it's good, right? It, it has a frequency that does it. And I think it gets lost in this idea of, hey, an NFT compared to, look, a baseball card. You know, I got a ton of shit behind me that's valuable because, it, you know, uh, you know, uh, Sandy Koufax was really good. So his baseball card is worth a ton, you, you know, and not every baseball card, most aren't worth anything because they're not good cards. How can yeah. we separate that with people? I, I believe the dummy, dumb, dumb tax that, that absolutely is true. We got to dummy it down, but we also have to let people understand you still have to be good. No matter what the platform is, you gotta have a gotta make game. a great product. Yeah. yeah. How can we help got people to. understand that? Because they lose, you know, a lot of money and get ripped off because they think it's the, the NFT that makes money, not the actual great product. Totally, totally agree. That that's been a focal point of ours from the beginning. Um, you know, and, and another thing that's interesting, a lot of people making NFT games have created these overly complex games, thinking that's gonna make it better. And uh, Kyle actually came up with the term crypto casual. And that's what we're trying to do with our game. So if you like Pac-Man, you can actually still play our game. Uh, there's a lot of mini games involved inside of it. So there's kind of something for everyone. But yeah, no, making a great product. we got a team of 32 people now, the most talented developers I've ever uh, worked with. And they, yeah, they're coming up with crazy stuff every day. It's, it's been a blast. Yes, you know, and like when you talk about differentiating the technology of like what makes an NFT different, then I can't tell you how many editors I talk to on a daily basis where we're talking about NFTs like they're like art, like they're baseball cards. And I was like, NFTs are going to be medical records. They're going to be in the credit card industry. They're going to like they're going to change. That's how you're going to sell real estate. Yeah, I'm a real estate investor here in Dallas. I do real estate investment here in Dallas, and I can't wait until NFTs get. You're in Dallas. I'm in Dallas. Well, Great. I live, in, I live in Frisco. Frisco. Oh, so, nice. Um, oh, right so, by the star, baby. Right by the star. Literally. Yeah, I was there last night. You know, uh, taking taking pictures actually. So, um, you know, but the thing is, is that it's really being able to explain the utility in these because I think a lot of these NFT projects, and you talk about the people who get fleeced for these things. There's no actual utility, and you know, before I joined the Mech project, that was something that I had a lot of conversations with Trey and Nick about. Is you know, how are we going to differentiate ourselves? And you know, for them, you know, they're the, the co-founders of Buildbox.com, the largest no-code game engine. And I was like, this is a utility that we can put in the hands of the people. And what makes Mech unique and, and our whole ecosystem unique is that the games that we put out are really just to kind of get the people going. And then after that, it's them utilizing the same tools that they have spent the last 12 plus years perfecting, creating games and creating an economy amongst themselves and kind of taking the game to new levels. It's our job as game creators to facilitate the creativity of the people in our ecosystem, not just sell them on the idea that what they're buying is great is actually providing them with the tools of like, no, take the, buy this, use it, make money on your own merit. Wow. Amazing. Mech.com, M-E-C-H.com. We got to bring everybody back. We got to do office hours too, uh, because our <laughs> guests are so extraordinary. You guys are almost as good as my South Park friends as well. We'll have Trey, <laughs> Trey and Kyle come back. Uh, maybe you can bring Nick as well. We might as well load up the screen. Might uh, as check well get out .com. You guys are super innovative uh, and you do have quality content and you're building a community and that's mm -hmm. really what's going to make it so powerful. It is a community that builds upon itself. Uh, with great people, great ideas, and great content. Thank you both for joining and your patience as well. We're going to have everybody back, so just join us again. Thank you so, so much. Mech.com, M-E-C-H.com. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Trey. So nice See to you meet later. you guys. Thanks, guys. Right on.
All right, Alicia, I know we're running over, but just real quickly, we do a, a takeaway for the day. Just to summarize one takeaway uh, that you got from this great show. And you got to come back as well, by the way. You are an amazing co-host. We got to do more together. What is your takeaway for today? You know, I think the takeaway is it's so funny because each person that you had on today is doing it. They're all building a community. And I think that what we are really realizing in this day and age is that that's where we're lacking. It's that connection and love and the ability to be with people, even though we have more resources than we've ever had to do it. We're also more segregated and alone than we ever have been. And so community has become such a big driver and every single person talked about it today. And I'm just like, that is so awesome. So if you're lonely or you know, you're depressed and you aren't a child for your parent to help you, that's what we all need to be doing is reaching out to the communities and find that place where we can plug in. That's awesome. And my takeaway for today is it's thankful Thursday. My takeaway oh, is how blessed I am. Uh, not just having you come on to my show, but these guests, I was, you know, blown away by just really good people, right? Yeah. Good, good people, passionate, purposeful and profitable people. So different. All of them, none of yeah. them look alike. None of them the same age, the same, but just really good people. And we're blessed to have a community of good people. So my takeaway is real simple. I'm just grateful to be mm -hmm. surrounding myself with the right people and the right ideas, which was a mission and a lesson of mine uh, through my own transformation over the last 16 years. I promised myself I'd surround myself with people and ideas that feed me. Man, am I full right now. I know we went over in time. I want to thank you again. Please send my love to Charles. Matt, mm -hmm. thank you for doing the show. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll see you again and have you on soon. My honor. Thank you so much, David, as always. All right. Yeah. Have a good one. Oh my gosh. I'm, I just adore that woman. She's amazing. If you're not following her, you make it a huge mistake. Super smart, super entertaining, and super good. Good-hearted people, good ideas, and good people. You got to surround yourself with them. Remember, everyone, uh, training is tomorrow, 7 a.m. Pacific time. Almost 23 years of training. We're going to get there in October. We're one day short, but uh, no more 22 years of training for free. 23 years. Uh, it's free, and if it's free, it's we. So email me. It's right there, David at dmeltzer.com. First name, David, at first initial D. Last name, Meltzer. That's like seltzer with an M.com, David at dmeltzer.com. But most importantly, everyone, it's Thankful Thursday. So remember to be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self. Do good deeds. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Thanks.